Stay on target. And we're live. Hello, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland. I'm one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. With me to discuss The Mandalorian Chapter 16, The Rescue, is Nuri Ely, Thomas Harper, and Gabby Martin. Have finished season two. Uh, we are ready to nerd out and talk about uh, this amazing season and in this episode that um, uh, made me actually look at green lightsabers as gifts for my younger brothers. So uh, uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't get there in time for Christmas. But yeah, it was that fun. Uh, so let's talk about <laughs> all the great legal issues that we have in the rescue. And uh, yes, yes, we are calling this, this episode, the rescuers on purpose because of the 1977 Disney film. So let's get into all the things that happen in this issue uh, episode, starting with going after the Imperial shuttle. Now, they fire on it, they disable it, and then they board it because they're taking that as a war prize so they can sneak on board a uh, Imperial ship. It's a solid plan. We've seen stuff like this before. Let's talk about the, the legality of boarding a foreign flagged vessel and taking it. And uh, Nari, do you want to take the first shot at this? Sure. Um, so I am not as much of an expert on the law of the sea as you, Josh, or the law of war as you, Tom. So I will ask you to pretty quickly uh, take this one over. However, I will note, though, that, you know, there there is such a thing as piracy. And this is a query for you, Josh, which is, is it so Boba Fett, although, you know, and we're about to get into this, you know, this operation, either this part about boarding the Imperial, boarding the Imperial shuttle or boarding the light cruiser could be interpreted as as an act by the New Republic, you know, at the, at the beginning, or later, maybe an act by the Mandalorian state, something like that. So let's just assume for these purposes that, you know, this is an act by the New Republic. Boba Fett is, you know, flying around with New Republic officer on board, uh, Cara Dune. Are they allowed to do this? Or do they have to also be flying colors to not be pirates? <laughs> Yeah, that's radically complicated. So I think we do need to discuss what is the nature of this operation in order to determine whether or not that's lawful for what right, they the did. the Imperial shuttle is easily identified, right? I don't know if they're literally carrying a flag or painted with an Imperial symbol, but they're clearly easily identified. I don't know I would say the same about Slave One. <laughs> This gets into, is he like a privateer at this point? So let's break down the issues that we have. Is this action like Din has put together a team who are acting as bounty hunters to go after Moff Gideon because he's accused of war crimes. The New Republic wants to capture him. So is this uh, a state or lawful action under that view? Is this the... Mandalorian people under uh, Bo-Katan a uh, military action as a liberation army to take back their planet or is this 
something else that's completely unlawful just with piracy? Or is it all of these things at once? <laughs> in, Which, a, in a way, you could argue that this is pirate on pirate crime. <laughs> I mean, if, if we're going to go down that route with the remnant. But yeah, it, it's very different that the two tracks, Nari and Josh are absolutely right that the, the analysis is not necessarily straightforward, but it does start with what authority these two parties have and really what, what authority uh, Boba Fett and his crew are operating under. I personally think it's a stretch to say they're operating under the flag of the New Republic, even if they have a, a marshal on board. Uh, you know, I think it's... The co-opting of or the the partnering with local, uh, you know, officials and and deputizing folks to to help expand the reach of the New Republic, I think, has its limits. And I think even Carson Tava and Trapper Wolf would say, whoa, 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 we didn't we didn't intend for you to be like a moth out here patrolling a sector and, <laughs> you know, trying to do good all over the place. We, we just wanted you to, to keep Navarro safe. So I think. It, they're at the outer limits of whatever minimal authority she had with that badge. Um, but that being said, if they are in, in any way like considered a, a new Republic vessel or, or something like that, you know, something with authority, uh, the law of the sea would kick in in terms of their ability as a, uh, you know, a, a lawful military force or an extension of it. Um, and I, you know, it depends on how you, you classify the remnant. I, I kind of think they're pirates <laughs> of their own here, but there, there is a right to engage. I mean, they, they are, uh, you know, enemy forces here, whether they're pirates or enemy combatants, I think there's a, an ability to, to use force against them. So that, uh, the slave slave one opening, opening fire on them, I think is lawful. But then there's also a really interesting branch called prize law, uh, of, of the law of the sea. And there's an entire uh, body of, of rules about taking a, another sh vessel. And that's a thing, it, you know, in, in uh, the real world, it's, you know, if we, if we go in and take, say that the Capitol building in Baghdad uh, or something like that, it doesn't become U S property. It's not automatically converted to, to be a U.S. asset or, or U.S. territory there. Uh, it still belongs to the Iraqi government, the Iraqi people. That's not so necessarily on this, the high seas. Uh, in fact, back in the day, uh, in, in Britain, they actually had uh, prize courts that were established to, to figure out disputes over this thing. You know, you lose your ship and you go to this court and argue that that it shouldn't be the property of uh, the entity that took it, and you f you fight it out there. Uh, that would kind of be amazing to see a Star Wars version of that. But yeah, I, I I personally think they're pirates, which in that case, it's like they're acting unlawfully. The remnant is acting unlawfully. You know, it's... Nobody's going you, to court. It's one big mess. Like, what are you going to do as the New Republic there? Just arrest yeah. everybody. <laughs> it's, it's along the margins at this point. And this is... I hate to say it's ends justify the means, but it's like when they look at the final outcomes like okay yeah that's uh we were way outside uh the lines with our coloring job here but we're just going to roll <laughs> with it uh yeah because when you think about early american history you know john paul jones and you know the bon homie richard made that uh ship that's now being scrapped rest in peace ah oh, such a waste but it's just there are war prices 
like that that's happened. Uh, the German U-boat U-505 was the first time that uh, American sailors went out and captured a foreign warship. And you know that's now a museum in Chicago in the uh, uh, Museum of Science and Industry. So it's happened. Uh, it's been a while since we've done anything like that uh, because we're not in full-on war where we're capturing other ships, but like this sort of thing's happened. And in the plot point, has been done before. We've seen an Imperial shuttle used with an older code to get where it needed to go. So, yeah. Um, and again, you can tell what toys Favaro and Filoni had uh, in their youth because I, I had similar toys in my uh, arsenal as well. So it's... I, I, I feel like it... Oh, go ahead, Nari. No, you first, Tom. I feel like at this point in Star Wars lore, if you were an Imperial and you see a Lambda class shuttle drop out of hyperspace that you weren't expecting, there is like a 99.9% .9 chance that they're coming to, to raid you or destroy you or attack you in some way. It's just, just go ahead and open fire. Don't ask for their codes or engage them in any discussion. Just assume the worst. I just wanted to add one more thing that generally supports uh, your thesis there, Tom, that this is a pirate action, not, not something else, which is that, you know, another analogy that we could have here instead of Law of the Sea would be like a police officer trying to, you know, throw up the lights and pull someone over in traffic and things like that. Mm -hmm. And we actually had an instance of that earlier this season with the two X-Wings trying to pull over the Razor Crest um, yeah. to check their transponder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um and the contrast there, though, is, of course, Slave One is not, you know, doesn't bear any markings or insignia that it's a law enforcement a New Republic vehicle. <laughs> um, so there is no reason that this, you know, even pretending that these Imperials are trying to be law abiding, they had no duty at that point to pull over. <laughs> so let's talk about the boarding party, because, you know, the boarding party is Cara Dune and uh, Mando. Mm -hmm. And... You know, the so a couple things happen here. So we have, you know, the left seat pilot who was technically would have been the pilot, uh, basically trying to negotiate, and in, in the co pilot shoots him. So, do I get to talk about this now? <laughs> yeah, so let's get into summary execution. Uh, but this, this either goes to it's a new Republic action, uh, but I think probably the stronger argument would be it's a Mandalorian action, because uh, mm -hmm. at least. Han being there, I think that there's a stronger mm -hmm. argument for that. Um, <laughs> uh, Gabby will want the counterpoint to that when yeah. we when we. No, I, the... I have I have a different theory altogether of how this is justified. Um, oh. I oh, go ahead. No, no, let's let's no, hear this before we get to the summary execution. Yeah, no, I I think you brought up a really good point, Josh, which is kind of considering this as a bounty mission. And we talked about this in the, the very, very first episode that we did on The Mandalorian, which was um, the kind of legal um, powers that bounty hunters have, right? And there's this clear line um, in any regulations regarding bounty hunters um, or bail enforcement agents or whatever you want to call them, um, that they are not law enforcement, right? They can't wear insignia. Uh, they can't use deadly force. There's 
that they are not, they can't pretend to be law enforcement. They are not law enforcement. Um, so Cara Dune could easily know, you know, now that she's a marshaled officer and she clearly has access to New Republic files, um, could know and be in communication with the New Republic saying, hey, we kind of got the drop on Moff Gideon. We know where he is. Um, and this may not be a sanctioned mission, but she may be in communication knowing that the New Republic wants Moff Gideon, right? He's an outlier. He's he's kind of the one that got away, the war criminal that got away. We know he's a war criminal. We know he was tried and basically skipped bail, right? Because they call him a war criminal in the season finale of season one. So he skipped bail um, and he's wanted by the New Republic. Um, and so this may be kind of the authority of this mission is that they're acting as bail or... Um, bounty hunters to secure Moff Gideon for the New Republic. Um, so they don't have the same authority as law enforcement and maybe even Cara Dune has kind of negated her kind of law enforcement authority to kind of act more as a bounty hunter than a law enforcement agent. Um, but that's what they're doing, right? They kind of take this clear change that they're not shooting anybody. They don't shoot anybody from the time they board um, I mean, they shoot the people who shoot at them, but they they don't shoot, you know, they don't go like execution style, just like they could have easily boarded that ship and shot both officers and, you know, taken Dr. Pershing. Um, and they didn't do they that. They did shoot one of them. Um, so <laughs> they did shoot one of them, but no, doesn't the other guy? Well, oh, well, yeah, because she, she gets mad at Pershing, him. Um, I I think that's <laughs> a, I think you've got it spot on. I, and and even, I don't even think you need to to... I think Moff Gideon is is a, a good hook there, but we learn from the Imperial pilot that that uh, puts the blaster to get or to Pershing's head that Doctor Pershing is one of the most wanted uh, criminals in the the least, New Republic. High value, high value target, right? Yeah. Which makes sense. He's this rogue uh, genetic scientist who's off doing nefarious things. Not to mention that in her jurisdiction on Navarro, they were committing crimes there that Kira Dune witnessed, albeit, you know, maybe before she was deputized, but uh, you know, you can make the <laughs> argument that they're going on board that, that shuttle stage one is a, a lawful chase down of uh, a bounty in the form of Pershing and stage two, use that shuttle, get a little, um, you know, misdirection and, and subterfuge and uh, go after the bigger target that the new Republic is also after. Well analyzed. Well, let's talk Before about. Move on. Can I just geek about one thing, which was uh, I thought it was hilarious. This co-pilot that had literally half a plan. The plan, half of the plan was I hold up Doctor Pershing. Nothing after that. Just taunt your enemy. <laughs> taunt, taunt the one person with the heavy repeater blaster, and a real emotional weak spot. But wait, sorry, let's, Josh. Can we get to the summary execution now? <laughs> yes, and then we're going to get into defense of others potentially or why not to taunt someone who's a sharpshooter uh let's no get into... to be too excited about murder just yeah <laughs> <laughs> talking about why we don't do this but anyway <laughs> so, uh, i'm only excited um, because the topic of Gary, you're turning into a red flag but yeah keep going i'm sorry okay, keep sorry. going 
Uh, I'm only excited about this because this has come up a few times. I finally buckled down and did some research. And Tom, you're welcome to correct me if I say anything that sounds slightly incorrect here. <laughs> but because um, this has come up, you know, even in this season, at least one other time, which was the, uh, you know, officer aboard the, um, I'm trying to remember what it was called. It was some kind of cruiser uh, who killed his two pilots, right? And then killed himself using his little suicide molar. Um <laughs> But so, you know, the question is basically, is it legal under any circumstances in the U.S. military code of justice? And we can also talk, you know, at least obliquely about beyond that uh, to summarily execute a service member, someone under your command, something of that nature. And basically, the short answer is no. (laughs) But there's some interesting history about that that I'll just touch on briefly. So while, you know, undoubtedly there were summary executions in military history, um, possibly U.S. I wasn't able to find anything specific about like when the last summary execution was in the United States. Um, You know, if we define summary execution as, you know, an execution based solely on the order of the local commanding officer, um, we haven't had that for at least 100 years. So we have, though, had what are called like drumhead trials and executions following those since at least as recently as World War One. Um, and in fact, a specific incident um, in World War One led to the creation of the now modern Uniform Code of Military Justice. So this is why we don't have summary executions is because I think, Josh, you like to say this, we have these laws because bad things have happened. So basically to, you know, without getting into too much detail, because you could we could talk easily about this particular incident for a long time. Um, In 1917, 13 U.S. servicemen of color were executed by hanging in Texas following a drumhead trial. Um, The story behind it all is pretty lengthy, but as you can guess, Jim Crow plays a starring role. It's a really, really terrible affair. Um, and they unfortunately got executed um, before anyone else could step in because this was again a drumhead trial they had it was basically a mass trial a show trial and were executed very quickly thereafter there wasn't any ask for approval to the um uh national uh uh sorry what would that be uh ju- judicial off advocate <laughs> tom what's the name of that judge advocate i think judge advocate yeah, yeah. Yeah, Judge Advocate General or the President. Um, shortly after that, there there was a Department of War, then Department of War order that went out saying that all um, uh, orders of execution had to be approved by the Judge Advocate General or the President before they were carried out. So that one fortunately came just in time to stay the executions of four other servicemen who had been given drumhead trials in France for quite minor offenses. So two of them were given drum, drumhead trials and sentenced to death for falling asleep in a trench. And granted, it was on the front line, so, you know, it's a little more serious than just falling asleep on duty somewhere else, but that, that was what they did. The other two failed to, or refused to show up to a drill, <laughs> so, um, and both, so all four of those were given trials that lasted literally minutes. There was almost no witness testimony, deliberation, or argumentation. <laughs> um, and in that instance, though, the judge advocate general and the president decided we're not going to allow these executions to go forward. There was some deliberation for a few years afterwards. And then in 1920, we get the Uni- Uniform Code of Military Justice in its first modern iteration. And that one said that you, you, know, you can still execute soldiers. So the death penalty is still on the books for about a dozen offenses in the UCMJ, including what would be most relevant here is cowardice in the face of the enemy. Technically misbehavior, but cowardice qualifies. Um, That's Article 99 for any legal geeks out there. (laughs) Um, However, it says, um, you know, maybe punished by death or any other punishment 
um, ordered by a court-martial. And court-martials under the modern military code of justice are in fact real courts. They have substantial guarantees of independence and um, uh, rights for the accused. So while they're not civilian courts um, and they don't necessarily carry all of those kinds of uh, procedures that you might expect. They do carry really substantial guarantees of due process. You just can't. <laughs> and I mean, like, you know, maybe there's an exigent circumstance in which a commanding officer in the heat of, you know, wartime decides that the only thing he can do is to summarily execute someone. But you would have to be willing to face the possibility of court martial for that. There's just no legal justification for that unless it's just as a practical matter. They decide not to court martial you for it. It's Thomas will know this better since this was his day job. Um, yes, that's why I was like, I was very closely watching Tom's face during this to see if he uh, was raising his eyebrows at anything I was saying. <laughs> but there is a Civil War comparison that can be shared with it. It's a uh, spin on cowardice in front of the enemy that if a Union troops like turned and ran back because they didn't want to get killed by Confederates, you could get shot for that. And Lincoln pardoned those guys, like, cause he thought it was perfectly natural for someone to run away from getting shot at. Um, so he really didn't like the idea of executing union soldiers who like turned and ran because they were getting shot at. Uh, the only thing that Lincoln wouldn't pardon as a death penalty offense of soldiers was rape. Yeah, so actually, interestingly about that, so the United States has sentenced approximately 150 servicemen to death between, I think it was like 1961, 1942 to 1961, um, and hasn't sentenced anyone to death since then, I think, um, or at least carried out an order of execution since yeah, then. Yeah, it's been a while. Of those, uh, oh, go ahead. Of those uh, approximately 150, uh, literally all of them were sentenced to death for rape, murder, or the combination of the two, only one service member was executed for desertion. So, and just to put this in reference, you know, we the way that our military has operated as well as their own cultural sensibilities have changed a lot over the last, you know, 150 years since the Civil War thereabouts, um, and obviously even much more before that. So, you know, on the on the one hand, we have a, a all volunteer army now. Um, even World War One and World War Two, especially. Although there were draftees, were generally seen, uh, popularly seen as justified wars. Um, so, you know, we didn't have the same kind of issue with desertion, most likely, in World War II, although it did happen. Um, and also our personal sensibilities as a country about what people should be put to death for has fortunately changed. Fun fact, uh, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces in, I think it was 1983, found the death penalty unconstitutional. But a year later, it was reinstated by President Reagan. <laughs> Tom, <laughs> like anything to add? No, I, the the uh, the history of uh, drumhead trials is really interesting, and there's still like a vestige of them within the UCMJ, and they're called for those that haven't heard it before. It's called a drumhead trial, literally, because the commander used to use a the top of a drum to write and you know execute the sentence on, uh, do the paperwork, basically. So, uh, it, you know, hasty field court martial under you know, what are supposed to be exigent circumstances. Mo the modern day version of that is uh, Article 15 of the UCMJ, which allows commanders, uh, you know, a much more straightforward way to deal with low level uh, offenses. So you're not going to see, and this is also called non-judicial punishment. And so you're not going to see like a rape or a murder handled by Article 15. But, uh, you know, 
lateness, missing duty, uh, you know, a small a wall of, of a few days or something like that. Uh, minor theft. Uh, the commander has the ability to run a, an article 15 himself or herself. They have limited authority for punishment. They can take rank, um, depending on the, the soldier's rank, they could take pay. They can, you know, give you restrictions, uh, extra duty, that sort of thing, but not generally not confinement, uh, until you step up to the, to a summary court martial, uh, that, that doesn't become an option. So, uh, it, I would call that sort of a vestige of, of drumbeat trials. Interestingly, if, if anyone out there paid any attention to the, the, like the last POW, uh, in Afghanistan that was recovered, Bo Bergdahl back in, gosh, I'm 2016, 2015, he was, he was found or released, I guess they, they cut a deal, um, they actually considered the government considered bringing misbehavior before the enemy charges against him and considered, uh, you know, referring that as a capital case, you know, for, for many of the same reasons, and, you know, the, the, I, I think the military internally, there was a, a split in how they saw that case, but it, it ultimately was not a capital case, but, um, that was sort of the first time in a while that that sort of particular charge had been thought of in that context. Um, you know, since, since he walked off his base in Afghanistan by his own admission, uh, and, and, you know, eventually got captured by the Taliban. So interesting here, I think the, um, one day we'll get a, a star Wars court martial on screen. One day. <laughs> I'm going to continue holding that flame and, and tending to it, but we'll get our wish. Can I just add one thing? I just want to make sure my, I understand article 15 correctly. Cause I did research this once um, a soldier who's, you know, potentially going to be punished under article 15 can request a court martial. Is that true? Yes. Uh, that is like the most frequent advice <laughs> that I have to give as a defense counsel now and in, in talking people out of doing that. Uh, and frequently you, <laughs> you just show them the, the, their maximum exposure for jail time if they were to turn it down. Uh, interestingly, under certain circumstances, like if a naval vessel is at sea, um, I, I think there is no ability for the, the sailor under those circumstances to turn it down. Uh, it's a limited, a real limited set there. But the idea is you, you can't just grind the system to a halt. Um, so, yeah. Um, Thanks for the long detour there, Josh. <laughs> I was really excited about that. <laughs> About how we don't summarily execute people, Gabby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Dune almost does. So let's get into the the issue of Persing is being held as a human shield at this point, which probably does motivate him to turn collaborator or he feels liberated because, again, when you're being used as a human shield, that might affect your feelings. Um, just going to go out on a limb there the pilot makes some really horrible statements about he had been on Death Star 1 and Dune does taunt him back with which one um, because they, as we saw in Rogue One, they had shuttles leaving, going back and forth, going to do things. It's entire, you know, lots of people were there. So again, you could see Alderaan get blown up and then you're doing the mail run. You know, it's like now I'm. We're gonna go pick up some uh, supplies. We we need some more motivators. So like they go go do a supply run, and and that's when the Battle of Yavin happens. So he he misses dying, but he's a, he's he's in what uh, in the legal sense we'll call a dick. 
and he decides to taunt her, you know, with like, I see the teardrop tattoo. You know, it was, uh, Tom, do you remember the exact quote of it was necessary to blow up Alderaan to, to stop terrorism? I, I can't remember the exact quote, despite having seen that episode now four times, five times. I've, I've lost wow. count. But <laughs> yeah, but I, I will say it's the first time that I know of that we've heard uh, the rebellion discussed in those terms on screen in a movie. Uh, there may or may not have been something in rebels, but um, yeah, that was, that was neat to hear. And it like, it felt like a needle. It was well written. Oh, it's like your plan. We blew up your planet. Sir, you weren't there when we killed everyone that you knew and loved. You just don't do that. at someone who's a sharpshooter. Like that is a bad life choice (laughs) to make. Now, was Dune justified legally in shooting him? Because morally, he could, yeah. But uh, we don't live in that. We just shoot the bad guy. Uh, but she did. So is this is this a homicide or like a manslaughter type situation where he provoked her enough to shoot him? Or is this a defense of others situation where... He had a gun to Persing's head. She didn't want that high view value target killed. So she took the shot after he decided to show just how dangerous he was by talking about it was necessary to blow up Alderaan, which mm-hmm. probably put her on notice that he might not feel too bad about just shooting uh, the good doctor. Uh, Gabby, I see that look in your eye. Do you want to focus? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was, I was thinking... Um, you know, this is kind of a good parallel to um, the the same kind of reaction we saw um, with with Bill Burr's character um, in the was it already mm. the previous episode um, that you know we were talking about the heat of passion um, mitigation, right? And so it's still it's still a t- form of murder, right? It's getting knocked down from from a murder charge to probably a manslaughter charge. It depends on your jurisdiction, depending on how your your state kind of categorizes degrees of murder. Um, but not that you should go be considering this. Like, don't if you are considering it from a defense perspective. Um, that is we, what we are talking about. Um, but no, heat of passion. Um, this is kind of another form of that, right? Bill Burr's um, characters was kind of triggered by a, by an almost PTSD reaction, right, that you can see him kind of getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And finally, he just and I can't remember what the kind of triggering snap line is that the the imperial officer says to him, but that's what kind of forces him to kind of snap and, and shoot um, the imperial officer here too, you can see it in I mean, granted, uh, Gina Carano is not the greatest as good an actor as, as Bill Burr, I think. Um, but you can kind of see it in her face that, that she's getting taunted, right? She's she's getting taunted, and and again, that heat of passion threshold is what a normal person would react to, right? It it doesn't consider the the kind of re- reasonable person standard, so it doesn't. If you're a hypersensitive individual, this doesn't kind of that's not the measuring standard here. 
But anybody who's being taunted about their planet being blown up and being called terrorists and, you know, kind of again and again and again and again, you can kind of see why she snapped. So I think she was not necessarily justified in killing him. Um, I don't think there's, you know, you can't really say that Bill, um, that Dr. Pershing was, yes, he was in danger, but, um, you know, and she's a law enforcement officer, which you could consider her using kind of deadly force to save the victim. Um, however, um, I really think that if she is charged with some form of murder, she can mitigate it down with a heat of passion defense, because I don't think they went on to that ship intending to kill anybody. Incapacitate them, yes. Kill them, not really. I think that was not intended. Because remember, the first pilot is shot by the bad pilot, the badder pilot, more evil pilot. I don't know. Um, the first pilot who is shot is like, to me, the soldier in the mess hall just holding his train. He's just there. He's yeah. doing his job. He doesn't want to die for the Empire. <laughs> but he can't get out. It's just like, look, I was drafted. I I know the war is over, but these guys don't. I'm stuck here. I don't know how to get away from this. And Indeed. She, I, the, I've looked on Indeed. There's no jobs available. <laughs> Hard. They, Come on now. They think I'm a war the, criminal. This is I can't date. <laughs> I can't get a job. This is all Everyone bad. Everyone swipes me. This is defamation. <laughs> I, I actually think she. I looked at it from a, a slightly different angle, and I, in the sense that she's a bad, you know, a, a sort of deputized agent of the New Republic, and he is, uh, you know, by his association with the Remnant. Um, an enemy combatant. I, I think she has some some amount of combatant immunity. I mean, you know, the the reason you don't see soldiers prosecuted for lawful acts on the battlefield is because of that legal concept that you know things done in war, if they're done within the the rules, they're going to be okay, uh, and that includes killing or injuring other people. And so I almost saw that as uh, you know her as a a New Republic official. Soldier might be stretching it a little bit, but you know, I would. That's what my argument would be if if I'm defending. Oh, her absolutely. If we're interpreting this as you know, under the law of war, th those are uniformed combatants. In which case, you know, you can be tried for a war crime, perhaps. And I, I did some research on this related to something I'm going to talk about in just a second. But you know, and you know, you can also try people for you can try prisoners of war for for war crimes. You still under the Geneva Convention, it has to be tried in a court that has some guarantee of independence and, and neutrality. Uh, so you can't you know just stick them in front of a military commander and say, "Do you think they committed a war crime?" Sure. <laughs> um, but you can wink once if, if you are yes. actively uh, if you're an active combatant, you have otherwise you know done acts that are lawful under the law of war. You cannot be tried for those actions. Um, I did want to point out. So one thing here, um, are there any problems with uh, taking the uh, Dr. Pershing uh, captive and then br I think, right, bringing him along with them on Slave One <laughs> into this combat zone? So uh, I, I, I want to uh, pitch this to Tom because uh, being, being our JAG officer, is Pershing a POW? Is he just under arrest by Cara Dune and in her law enforcement capacity? Or... 
is he now a collaborator because he starts volunteering no you want to go here and turn this off <laughs> so he seems to get really cooperative very fast and i mean there's a third theory too but i'll let i'll let thomas go first yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I don't think he's a pow i i don't think that at all i i think that's a very specialized term even though in you know common usage it, it gets used a lot it's it, it's really a like a, a very technical term in in the sense of like all the qualifiers that have to be in place for you to even get it and and um, you know the, the key one is that there has to be an international armed conflict and i i don't know that we have that here um you know whether we're especially if we're considering this like a law enforcement type action so i don't think he gets those protections um and and so then you're you know he he's potentially a detainee and you're you're operating in a real gray area and depending on well, i guess mon mothma's in charge of the new republic at this point in time so she's probably you know treating you know imperial or or tangentially connected imperials with with you know, some amount of uh, kid gloves. So I, I think he could expect some decent treatment. But I agree with you, Josh. He almost quickly becomes like an opportunistic collaborator. Like he's just in very quickly on this because he sees yeah, a this chance. this might be your answer, but I, I don't think this is opportunistic at all. Do you agree? <laughs> no, I, I, what I was going to say, and again, this is kind of coming from the civilian perspective and, you know, maybe we, let's, you know, at best consider that Cara, Cara Dune's acting in her law enforcement capacity, right? And she has has deputized um, everybody on board and they're all have kind of law enforcement or quasi law enforcement authority um, to do kind of the, the subsequent actions. That, um, I would think Dr. Pershing is acting and maybe that was the entire um, purpose of securing Dr. Pershing was not necessarily um, for, you know, to bring him into the New Republic. I think it was to secure him as a, in, as a confidential or as an informant, right? He's, they're basically going, if he hadn't come willingly, they probably would have said, listen, we can turn you over to the New Republic or you can help us get Gideon and kind of go on your merry way. Um, because, right, he's the smaller fish to get the bigger fish. Um, and the way he acts once they get him on Slave One is very much, you know, like an informant. Like, here's how you get into the ship. This is where you go. Um, this is where you don't go. This is where they're holding the dark troopers. Um, you know, so he's acting in very much that capacity. And I think they knew that they could flip him without kind of much arm twisting uh, because Din knows from the time that he tried to, that he tried to get Grogu back um, that, you know, Pershing really cares about the child, right? That was per Pershing's initial reaction was like, I'm not hurting him. I'm not hurting him. Um, so Pershing is much more on the softer side than somebody like Moff Gideon. Um, so I think that was their intention all along was to use him as kind of a tool, um, or an informant to get in more information, um, about the base. That's why they use Bill Burr's character was to get more information to get access code, right? They're using these kinds of um, pawns to get what they need. Yeah, I like the way, I, I really like that a lot. Also, his, like from a tactical perspective, uh, Gideon probably expects very few shuttles to be approaching uh, Pershing's 
shuttle would be probably on the short list of expected arrivals at their super secret location. <laughs> so what better Trojan horse to, to capture than the, uh, the shuttle that's carrying him. Yeah. Although that I, I think Gideon sort of figures it out immediately. Yeah, and, and it's key <laughs> but, that, that Pershing doesn't, they leave him on the ship, right? They, they take his, his and they take the information that they need from him. And then he gets left on the ship, right? He's, he served his purpose we don't know necessarily what happens to him afterwards, right? Because the show, the episode just ends and we don't, you know, know what happens to him, um, which is one of my issues. But um, yeah, so he's not like, he doesn't become a conspirator or some kind of other um, player in their game. He's just kind of, like I said, this kind of pawn to assist them um, in their, their goal of getting Gideon. I just wanted to add one more thing, which is uh, I, I think that um, poor Dr. Pershing is being cast in too unfavorable a light here. <laughs> which is, and, and this is, um, I think that he probably does consider himself more liberated than captured <laughs> in the sense that there's been a, a pattern of, uh, of practice with him since, as you mentioned, Gabby, uh, season one, where, you know, he seems to be acting under very unhappy circumstances uh, he seems to behave a little more like um uh i'm trying i'm blanking on the name but the main character's father galen yes mm-hmm. yeah galen. Um, where he is not okay with moff gideon doesn't like him is not okay with the methods is trying to be an ethical doctor right and so for example that was most recently in the transmission he sent to moff gideon saying we need to stop these experiments because the volunteers have horrible reactions to this procedure and then die. <laughs> and Gideon, of course, wants to continue. <laughs> um, so it seems to me that he's probably under some kind of duress because he seems pretty unhappy with his circumstances and extraordinarily willing to help out as soon as he's taken captive. As far as I can tell, there was no arm twisting involved. He just volunteers some information, which makes the, the heroes a little suspicious. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just like, I just shot a dude... You're, you got a little scorched on the side of your head and you're completely cool with it because you're out of the hostile work environment where you can get shot for interrupting Gideon. So he seems to be very okay with being out of the bad job and looking forward to new employments anywhere else. Um, it's a tough job economy out there, man. I just, yeah. So let's get into... <laughs> Boarding the cruiser, uh, which again, is this vigilanteism? Is it a police action? Is it military action? Or is it all of them at the same time? Tom, what do you think? I think it's the same sort of analysis on a much bigger scale because it's a much bigger ship. I, side note to, to geek out, I love that the, like the tactic here, not just that we saw uh, TIE fighters launch from a first person view, but that they... They're not going into a landing bay, sort of like, you know, Han on, on the Death Star or something like that. They're they're uh, going straight up the gut down the launch tube of this light <laughs> cruiser. But I, I think it's the same sort of concept, you know, that, that we, we talk through with the shuttle uh, and the same sort of authorities. I, you know, the the compelling one to me is going after a bounty. I really like that analysis because I, I really think it's, it's a stretch to say that they're, that, that Kara has like assembled this posse as a local law enforcement officer and that somehow, you know, her jurisdiction is now expanded to, to wherever this 
unknown patch of space is and she can just go after you know a guy who committed a crime on her planet wherever she wants and cause whatever destruction comes with that that just sort of seems like like a little beyond the scope of what the new republic would want and i think this is the first time we've seen a launch tube with the kind of a battlestar galactica-esque launch of a of tie fighters yeah. which again yeah that's a good comparison. yeah because again it's we've seen them come out of the lower bay mm-hmm. for the last 43 years. So this seemed to be a new method we haven't seen before. Then again, we really haven't seen this class of ship maybe outside of animated series. And even then I don't remember a launch right. tube, but there's a lot of content to go through to, to verify that. Uh, but it's a great way to block other ships from being launched. Uh, to to do a crash landing to to block the tube so they can't launch other uh, aircraft. It'd be like landing on an aircraft carrier backwards. That instead of you know going from the stern to catch the third <laughs> wire, you come across the bow and land that way to uh, into uh, all the planes waiting to get launched. So like they. they Sorry, guys. Oh, yeah, you're getting shot at. So. Uh, yeah, we came in hot and screwed everyone. So, um, again, raises the question, how many pilots were on board? And how many TIE fighters were, were still there? And did they did those the four-person strike team literally take them all out? Because that's impressive. Um, uh, but, again, this, they did say it was a skeleton crew. Skeleton crew, except for they—they they didn't know about the dark troopers. I think, uh, well, but did. I think you're right that it was a skeleton biological crew. Yeah, and and they do they do discuss that that in the, you know the old days versus now. Um, so they they have lost people. Um, yeah. Now we get there's all the fighting that takes place, but when we get to the brig for Daddy's home to get his kid. Um, we, we have Din and Gideon discuss terms for, you can keep the dark saber. I just, I just want to get my kid. Uh, uh, Nari, did you enter this analysis? I did. Okay. <laughs> so, Why don't you take it away? Yeah. Yet another classic example of you cannot make a contract under duress. So... <laughs> Um, uh, not to repeat ourselves too much, I'll just say a couple things briefly. Duress is defined by Black's Law Dictionary, 6th edition, as any unlawful threat or coercion used to induce another to act or not act in a manner they otherwise would uh, not or would. So um, duress negates consent for all legal purposes. So this includes, obviously, contract formation. It also includes things like, you know, consenting to medical procedures, consenting to sexual intercourse, anything <laughs> in which you might want to have a legal concept of consent, duress will negate it. You cannot have consent if there's duress. So even if, though, let's just pretend that this was a valid contract, just because I had some fun thinking this through. <laughs> um, Gideon obviously breaches the contract, right? So there is an agreement, and this kind of happened before, I think, when Din made the agreement with the random bounty hunter on Tatooine, um, you know, leave the kid, I'll give you the jetpack. Mm -hmm. Um, Another contract under duress. 
Um, in this instance, though, you know, Gideon is the one that clearly does the breach as opposed to Din firing off the rocket launcher, which we had fun talking about, you know, is still technically within the letter of the contract, just maybe not the spirit of it. But in this case, Gideon clearly breaches the contract when, you know, he, he attacks Din in the back um, when Din is trying to retrieve Grogu. So just as a little fun side note here, does that relieve Din of his obligation to perform his end of the contract? Gabby, you're nodding yes, that is correct. Yep, yep. Um, that he, is, he doesn't have to leave the ship now. Not, yeah, yeah, that is classic. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, that is classic, classic bad fate. Which yes. is when it, it's it's this weird kind of catch-all term um, in contract law where you're basically like if somebody doesn't act like a reasonable contractor or a reasonable person party to a contract should um, they they're acting in bad faith or otherwise if they're acting like a jerk they're acting in bad faith. And I think, well, you know, Gideon kind of walking around and saying, yeah, we're totally cool. And then, you know, attacking Din from behind, classic, classic. I mean, to the point that they should teach this in contract <laughs> here. That would make contract law so much more interesting. Just get rid of the your, your uh, case book and replace it with a DVD of season two. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other thing that comes to mind, I know we're going to talk about this in a different context, is you know, can you even have a valid contract over the return of your kidnapped, adopted child? <laughs> you know, it's like not only is there duress involved, but you know, the consideration that uh, that Gideon is is proposing to offer, on top of like. I won't kill you as part of the consideration, I guess you could call it, but I'll return this captive that I have no right to hold mm-hmm. <laughs> who, who you have a special bond with, like effectively your child. I give you your kid back. If you do the thing that I want you to do in this negotiation, yeah, this, this doesn't pass the, what would grandma say? Test. <laughs> grandma would say that, that <laughs> both of my grandmothers would come to that conclusion and and be quite forceful with, with uh, uh, how to solve that problem. Uh, <laughs> now we then get into just, we're talking the law. We're not going to go through all of the plot points right yet. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was promised time to air my grievances. Yeah. When we get rich <laughs> and captured, Grogu's, you know, you know in Din's arms, and, uh, and, and, you know, Din has the Darksaber ignited, you know, walking in uh, Gideon. And, uh, you know, Bo-Katan's reaction is like, uh, what happened? Uh, her, her reaction is so priceless. She just turns around speechless. I, I was not <laughs> expecting that. Um, so this raises the issue of, like, how do we work this out? Because we can totally work this out. Uh, but, you know, is it possible to create a legal instrument such that the title to the Darksaber could only be attained through combat? And again, we do have old trial by combat cases that, that you know, are apparently still good law, but, you know, we... No, there's a big difference here. There's a big difference between something not being expressly overturned or struck from the books and still good law. This is dead letter law. You just tried. To do this <laughs> there was a guy in Staten Island who tried it and 
<laughs> Why am I not surprised? He <laughs> was then later arrested because he wanted to play mobster, but that's another story. And sorry, this reminds me that I, I had been wanting to mention earlier when we were talking about the provocation to murder and things like that. Another good example of dead letter law that has not been expressly overturned, fighting words as a justification for taking violence into your own hands. <laughs> yeah, so let's... um. Let's break this down. So, Nari, what do you think? This one's a little short. I, I had some fun thinking about this for a second, but the legal answer is pretty short. I cannot think of a way to craft a legal instrument uh, that would say that title to this property can only be obtained through murder. <laughs> like, um, you know, you might be able to, if, if we're talking, if you, if we're getting creative here and instead it's not through murder, it's through, you know, a Defeat. sport combat, non-lethal combat. You actually might be able to do that one. And that would be, for example, like uh, putting a condition on a gift in a will, right? You know, you can only obtain this if you defeat, you know, the current possessor in um, non-lethal uh, test of strength, things like that. Then that might work. But if what we're actually talking about is th what the actual Darksaber is, which is you have to obtain it on, you know, in battle and where lethal combat is, is at, at stake... It's, you can't contract against public policy. <laughs> um, and that includes conditions on gifts in will. So if anyone out there was thinking about putting a condition in their will that you have to murder someone <laughs> to get this property, you can't, you can't do that. It won't work. Well, here's the thing. Gideon's not dead. He was merely defeated. So the issue mm -hmm. is defeat in combat. However, it have to be real combat. That's the thing, right? right? Like, if, if we're going with the real spirit of the Darksaber, even if people don't die, it has to be mortal combat. You could die. Yeah. Um, and in mm -hmm. that sense, unless, again, like I said, unless you're getting a little creative here and we're playing a little fast and loose with the rules about the Darksaber, I don't think you can make an actual legal instrument for this. This is just cultural tradition story, as they put it. It's, you know, I'm not saying they couldn't do this in the Star Wars universe mm -hmm. or have a story surrounding an artifact even in our, our world, but you couldn't accomplish accomplish this through legal instrument yeah and I, I think that's that's it's you can look at what gideon says about it through that lens in terms like the legal lens because he says that saber itself has no value right it's just a except thing for being a well yeah. except for being like a really cool thing that i hope they make into like a high-end <laughs> collectible so that i can have it and hold it and <laughs> sleep beside it but anyways i digress <laughs> i digress Mar marissa may not may or may not be watching this um but you could look at it as the the legal title to that item that piece of property is irrelevant to mandalorians or, or to to the tribes whoever still exists out there the, the value that they attach to it is as you say nari the the lore of it and uh, you know, you can you can be the legal owner all day long, but if you didn't meet these cultural conditions to it, we don't care. We're not going to follow you. And good luck getting us to do anything that you say. So, yeah, problematic. Now, let's. But I think I just wanted to point out that um, Din can do. I mean, obviously, um, you know, there's the cultural significance of Saber, but we could have. Din's imaginary little Babu Frick style lawyer pop up and draft um, a document to bequeath the Darksaber to Bo-Katan 
And because somebody doesn't have to die to bequeath something to another. So, you know, this little, you know, Bobo Frick lawyer could have popped up, drafted a document, two of them that he handed it over, obviously barring any kind of cultural and, and dark saber. Um, but that totally could have happened because you don't have to necessarily die to give something to another person um, as far as, you know, it is mine and now it is yours for, and it could, because it wasn't just, obviously, it's not the item itself, it's to your heirs, um, you know, in, in perpetuity. I, I think that's exactly you spot. I mean, you, that's what Din tries to do. And, yeah. and he just gets met with like, uh, you don't know as much as you think, you know, nice try though. Which, uh, let's, this, people have raised the issue. Well, Sabine Wren gave the dark saber to Bo-Katan. Why did that work? And I think the issue is Bo-Katan. So, Bo-Katan lost it to Moff Gideon somehow. Whether we don't know. I mean, Sabine didn't lose it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sabine won it or found it. Let's not get into all the details from Rebels. Sabine had it, learned how to use it, ultimately gives it to Bo-Katan. I think that works because Bo-Katan was not the one who lost it to Darth Maul. And I think that's the, I think that's the big difference because uh, Bo-Katan lost it in combat or how they were attacked in the night of a thousand tears, whatever the situation was that Gideon got it in, in his possession, it's because Bo-Katan lost it. She probably has to get it back through combat according to their culture because of how she lost it, which is why it being a gift a second time doesn't work in the situation. Yeah, but, maybe in Mandalorian culture, everybody gets one. Yeah, <laughs> not, not after that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good theory. I think that probably explains her fixation on Gideon more than anything. That's all she cares about on this show. I mean, obviously she's after the weapon, but she is laser focused on him. And I think her reaction as as uh, Din walks onto the bridge, just like completely oblivious, like I got him. <laughs> it's just it, I, I think it. It backs that point. You're out. welcome. This was, yeah, this what do you mean? So this sword? Uh, just take it. I this was well executed. And I know, Gabby, you may not agree, but I thought this particular plot point was well executed. Where Gideon, you know, number one, it explains what might have been otherwise just kind of movie bravado from Bo Katan right before they start the mission, which is, you know, whatever else happens, I don't care, but Gideon must surrender to me, <laughs> which just, it could have just been movie talk, but instead it really matters. <laughs> um, and it also explains, you know, Gideon, who is kind of, you know, I am just continually delighted by his actor's performance and his delivery of this line where, oh, you're sparing my life. Now things are interesting. <laughs> so, and he gets to witness what happens and he clearly delights in watching what happens when Bo-Katan realizes. <laughs> so I have, a, I have another theory with Gideon surviving that. So we saw the prior commander on the ship that got captured have the death tooth. When Gideon's marched onto the bridge, there's blood in his mouth. So that could be from the fight, or it could have been because the Mandalorian ripped out the death tooth after capturing him, which I would do. It's like, I know you guys are hardwired that you, you get a molar taken out and uh, it can kill you. 
I'm going to pull that out because I can see which tooth with my special helmet cam is <laughs> the shock tooth. And I'm just going to yank your tooth out, which would explain the blood in his mouth. And I mean, it was a lot of close quarters combat. And I can also totally see Gideon being like, you know, killing yourself rather than surrounding to the enemy. That That's for all the lower officers. True. I mean, obviously not D- for me. And, and maybe <laughs> Din, would never pra- Din would never practice dentist- dentistry without a proper license. So <laughs> there's that. But putting him in a bind. But because again, we ultimately see uh, the moth put a gun to his head and uh, Dune knocks it out. So he doesn't have a death tooth. And that's either because it was never installed uh, or the Mandalorian extracted it. And I just want to say, isn't there a risk that that thing could prematurely go off if you had a death molar? That's an interesting product product defect case. Like, what if someone grinds their teeth in their sleep? (laughs) You would would learn to chew differently very quickly. Frank should have been wearing his mouth guard. I told him. I know. (laughs) You know, so, sorry, you know, he got electrocuted and killed a spouse uh, <laughs> as well. So, oopsie-daisy. Um, <laughs> now, this is, um, oh, we, we have this X-Wing fly in, and immediately I thought that's Red F- 5, and they're doing the thing I thought they would not do. And did Luke Skywalker have a duty to rescue Grogu? And... Is there a special relationship that would cause that because of the message Grogu sent out from the Seeing Stone? I, think, I don't think he did. Oh, go ahead. No, why don't you think he did? I, I don't think he did because I, Ahsoka laid out. I, he's under no duty to respond to the call. Mm-hmm. The, the call wasn't a distress call, at least from the the seeing stone, it was, Hey, I am a Jedi out here and, and in search of a master or somebody to assist me because he hadn't even been kidnapped at that point. And so, um, you know, I, I, and, and this goes to what Ahsoka was saying in the, the prior episode, which is somebody may not respond to it. They, they just, you know, they may hear the message, but they may choose not to, to come. It, It doesn't work like a, a beck and call that always gets answered. And so from, you know, in the, I think purely in the message that was sent from the seeing stone and Luke hearing that with the knowledge that he would have had in that communication, I think, no, that, that alone didn't establish a duty. Now, maybe it's a little different if Luke had some knowledge as he clearly must have that, that Grogu, or maybe he just sensed Grogu's location, uh, that he was in trouble uh, and, and imprisoned on this ship. Well, so I think, um, you know, if we're treating Luke here as a private individual and not, you know, some law enforcement member or, or first responder of the New Republic, mm-hmm. um, and even there, I think in common law countries, you know, you couldn't sue, I think, a first responder who's rescuing you. But uh, there's basically, in a common law country, there is very very limited duty to rescue Mm -hmm. um in civil law countries i believe and i'm not an expert on it but i believe it is there is a much more expansive duty to rescue that might encompass um you know uh 
a minor who is not related to you who is in danger um, or might encompass people who have a special ability. And I just want to posit that if you are Luke Skywalker, you may always be under that <laughs> condition. You always have a special ability to rescue everyone around you. But in common law countries, there has to be a special relationship between the person who is supposedly under the obligation to rescue and the rescuee. Um, I think Din might actually have a duty to rescue here if we consider him to be the parent of minor Grogu. Of course, Grogu being 50 years old, we can have the age-old quibble about whether or not he's a minor. He's a, he's a, he's a child. Um, and so there, there is generally a parental duty to rescue your minor children. Um, for Luke, though, I'm having a hard time finding a special relationship here, right? I think, Tom, you were hinting at there might be a duty if this were like a distress call, because I think that at least... For ships at sea, if there's a ship with a distress call, you have to render aid and assistance. Um, but, you know, just if, if Luke is a private citizen, you know, we've generally in, in common law countries, including the United States, decided that it's not right, it's not worth it for us to create even relatively nuanced rules about affirmative obligations that people have to to take risks to rescue people. Um, it's, you know, there are some laws that protect people who choose to do so. At least some states have good Samaritan laws and things like that. Um, but we don't, use, we don't have really any laws that require people to do so. Gabby, do you have thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to say, and something Nari said kind of triggered this for me, is if, um, and even if Din did hand over Rogu willingly, it's important to know um, what a court would consider with regard regarding um, who they um, find for custody um, purposes. Um, and somebody who, in, in the kind of family law context, obviously the parent has the strongest kind of uh, case for custody, depending on circumstances, then grandparents. So if it's a parent versus grandparent situation, parent usually has stronger um, pull than a grandparent. Um, and then grandparent, grandparent versus um, third party, um, even if it's a family friend, um, or like, you know, Luke's case would be a special teacher. Um, the parent and the grandparent would have a stronger case, right? Because the court wants to keep you keep the child um, with the closest kind of family relation. They're very, very hesitant to, to give custody to a third party unless, Kate, you know, there's significant kind of evidence and, and a case for putting that child with a third party, um, even if it's an, any sort of non-related party, whether it's a family friend or teacher or whoever. Um, so that's just something to consider. Um, if this did kind of go to a custody type situation, um, that would be kind of factors the court would consider. Um, and I think, you know, who knows? It, I think Din um, willingly relinquishing Grogu may pull in Luke's favor, um, but it'd be interesting if the court had foreshadowing um, to know that Luke's teaching doesn't go very well. Um, so, and that Grogu may end up being a casualty of Luke's destroyed temple. Um, don't you say that. So. We don't know that. <laughs> don't you say those words. 
we, we we don't know if he's gets a growth spurt and is long gone by the time that Kylo Ren goes. <laughs> well, there's a pretty significant span of years, right? Between it's like just like, I mean, looking at how de-aged Luke is in this scene versus what he looks like. At least twenty-five, maybe thirty. Yeah, Grogu's got some time to go back to Mando, which is what I hope for mm-hmm. <laughs> other things along the way. So I, um, I did. Oh, I just wanted to flag really quick just for you know people who are listening um i realize i don't think i any of us explained what we mean by duty to rescue so it means that yeah so it what i'm not we're not talking about like a law that says that you must do x or face criminal punishment what we're talking about is in tort law if a person who has suffered an injury could sue someone for failing to rescue them for to to, you know compensate them for their injury Mm -hmm. um and it it, you can do that in very limited circumstances in the united states long story short (laughs) are you a force user who's been abandoned by a jedi master (laughs) call us now you may be entitled to compensation so (laughs) so my theory is no but that's why luke's the hero so luke has the ability that that we saw in empire strikes back to know when his friends were in danger and that's why he decides to go to Cloud City to save his friends because sitting back and letting them die just bothered him. So, but we didn't know that death would be, uh, you know, for certain. Not even Yoda could see that. Luke gets the call. Luke was trained by uh, Yoda, same species. So his reaction is like, yeah, I'm going to cowboy up and go get this little guy. And he didn't have a duty to do that. But he did it anyway, making him a hero, which is what we want to see from Luke Skywalker. So that that is why I was nerding out um, with with the scene of Luke striding through the the uh, Imperial ship, just slicing. Uh, I see dog. Gabby shaking her head, and I yeah. have—I I think we have to give her a minute to talk here. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Gabby, your reaction. Was not a, I mean not a fan. I just ugh, I, I I I should sing. I tried really hard. I tried really hard in the same way I tried really hard to like the season premiere. Um, that if you've watched um, all of our episodes this season, you know I also was not a fan of. Um, and to me, there the, the, okay. One good thing. One pro to kick back to my creative class where we had to write pros and cons about everything. One pro, I think it's great how they kind of finally capped off Mando's arc with regards to his being comfortable removing his helmet. I think that was well done. Um, That's where I ended it. Um, Because there was just so much of things happening for kind of plot sake I was not happy with them kind of shoehorning uh, Luke in there. I think there's so many other Jedi that they could have, even if even if they made up a Jedi, I don't care. You know that they're the, there's for Mace Windu. Yeah, that. But he, the, to me, the, the, one of the things that made this show so special was that it wasn't really connected. Um, you know, it kind of had tie-ins to Rebels and. Um, you know, the extended universe, but it really didn't, apart from its premise of being seven years after uh, Return of the Jedi and kind of 
you know, kind of touching on like galaxy wide things that happen like the Death Star and, you know, um, the Imperial Remnant and, and, and the New Republic and stuff like that. It really didn't kind of circle back to uh, the main uh, trilogy and shoehorning Luke Skywalker in there and being like, the Skywalkers have to be involved with every gosh darn thing that happens in the galaxy. Like they're the ones that always have to come in and save the day was kind of nauseating for me. Um, and I just, I, I felt like it was rushed. I think they, I mean, given the post credit scene, which I hope all of our listeners stayed till after the credits to watch the post credit scene. So if you do not see the post credit scene, please hop off now because there are spoilers. Um, but given that the post credit scene kind of set up a new journey for the next chapters of the Mandalorian, um, and it seems like a lot of what was set up in season one and season two, especially, um, are just kind of going to go to the side, at least the main plot points, and they're going to focus more on, on Boba Fett. Um, the handoff to me wasn't smooth. We've seen this kind of storytelling uh, theory in other shows, um, you know, notably like The Crown, uh, where they have kind of segmented um, seasons where, you know, two seasons tell one story, another story. Um, Doctor Who also does with kind of regeneration and there's a handoff um, playing the Doctor. I think that transition was not smooth. It felt very rushed. Um, and there were a lot of plot points that were set up that I don't think just seem to have been thrown in to, you know, cause a reaction um, and not really pay off. Um, it got too wide um, of a storytelling. So I was not a fan. I know I'm probably, if anybody listens and knows my Twitter handle, I'm probably going to get some hate on Twitter. Um, and people, I posted on Twitter the other day. So I know people are wondering uh, once the spoiler lift comes off, why I didn't like the episode, but I didn't like it. I was not a fan. I think Filoni and, and Favreau kind of let us down, um, but I will give season three a shot. So I will give them time to redeem themselves. Oh, I just have a question. So, is the book of Boba Fett, is that Mandalorian season three? Or I, I thought that might've been a spinoff. So, so there was confusion about we that. Know. Well, there was somebody that's associated with Lucasfilm. I forget his title. And he weighed in on Twitter and then deleted the tweet and, and basically said they are two separate shows. They have two separate shooting schedules. It's, it's different. So, um, you know, I, I don't think Lucasfilm has come out and officially confirmed it, but that was about as close to anything official that's come out in the last, you know, what, 48 hours. So I, I, I will briefly just mention, cause I have to hop off it at nine 30 here. Um, the, uh, I I'll disc I don't completely disagree with you, Gabby. I think you make some like really like really good points, um, especially in terms of the uh, the creative handcuffs that the Skywalker family has placed <laughs> on on the creators. Um, I it it fit for me. I I enjoyed it, but um, I I absolutely saw where you're coming from, and you know that thought crept into my mind as I was watching this. <laughs> the the last issue that we had that I just wanted to offer like a little bit of thought on about Din removing his helmet in front of Go Grogu. First of all, as a dad, I like was tearing up at 345 <laughs> in the morning or whatever it was and was like, Oh dear, I'm going to go wake my kids up now. But, um, did, interestingly, did you go and wake your kids and put your, put your hand by their face and be like, 
You know, my daughter at that hour, my daughter would like wake up and be like fully charged and ready to go. She goes from like, it's like powering up a Mac. She just like is on and then doesn't stop until it's nap or bedtime. But anyways, your kids have fear of face, right? Yeah, I do. Sure. Right. The, um, the thing that popped into my mind, what, you know, th this, this is a huge moment in the show and a huge moment for Din and his, his evolution. But I thought about it in the sense of like, this has been such a big uh, cultural item for him, a religious belief that I thought about it in the, in the sense of like, you know, could his fellow death watch folks or fellow um, sort of uh, ultra uh, orthodox Mandalorians give him sort of like the equivalent of a Catholic church canonical trial. There, there are, you know, the, the church itself, and I don't know whether other religions have this sort of thing, but there is an, a whole body of uh, church law called canon law, and uh, priests can be put on trial inside the church for delicts, which are just you know violations of core uh, tenets uh, of of uh, you know the, the church's belief structure, or for abuses of their office. And you know I could see this being sort of a fundamental breach of you know what he considers to be a. a you know, an identity point for being a Mandalorian. If, if this sort of thing exists, could he be put before a tribunal? And they don't, they work a little like a, a canon trial works a little like a civil criminal trial or a civil trial. Um, you know, they're, they're, except they, the big difference is that you have like three to five judges. The judges do the questioning of the witnesses. There are attorneys on both sides. There's a, a prosecutor, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, and a defense attorney for the accused cleric. And, uh, you know, they, they do play a role. Uh, there, there are certain due process rights. But I think it would be fascinating. I think it's going to come to a head. Like, that's going to get addressed in season three in some form or fashion. Uh, we have not seen the last of the armor and, and uh, Paz Vizla and his other compatriots there. So there's going to be a reckoning there. But I that's just what came to mind there, was that they could come after him. Like, if if the Mandalorians have 10 commandments and one of them are don't take your helmet off. He's going to get prosecuted for that within the I do Mandalorian. Want, I do want to uh, mention just one thing, which is because um, I also did my research about Mandalorian history and culture to make sure I brushed up on it. And so Din's tribe is technically the children of the watch as opposed to the death watch itself, which now that I'm catching right. up on uh, Clone Wars, I understand the initial antipathy that I didn't have <laughs> towards them. Um, but so it's possible that, you know, they're a little less terrible and rigid just because they're they're technically something slightly different obviously they're yeah. you know, successors in some fashion um but you know they, they seem to be a little different and in fact they call themselves something slightly different um yeah but before you have to go tom um josh do we want to uh say thank you for our our christmas gift oh yeah yeah so want to highlight um aaron from ryloth relics because he sent us all high quality uh, swag. We, we I, I got the Thrawn Christmas ornament. We got the clan of of two. Sigmund. Which I just want to highlight. We, it has Mandalorian script, I believe that is on the back. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Man Mandoa. It's, yeah, it's it's bitching. Yeah. And in addition to that, there's the the Santa Rex with you know Captain Rex, well beard mm -hmm. rebel style with with the Santa hat on, mm -hmm. and it's awesome. 
So, uh, oh yeah, and the 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 minifig of of uh, uh, Grogu, Santa baby, yeah. totally off, <laughs> totally, totally, totally. If, if you are listening to this and you have not checked out Aaron's shop, uh, again, it's it's Ryloth Relics. You can Google it and it'll it'll come right up. Uh, do it. It is some of the most unique and well designed Star Wars stuff out there. I would say if you're looking for a Star Wars item like a patch or a, a coin, something unique that like other fans have to like think for a second and and when the light clicks on they're like that is awesome that's what this stuff is uh and it's you know designed with love by somebody who's a huge fan that knows a lot and channels that love and energy into the products and uh i'm a customer of his and and i'd like to think a friend on you know some levels uh for life and uh you know he um constantly churns out new stuff so check it out yep so uh aaron yeah, thank, thank you aaron it's absolutely right. beautiful mm-hmm. craftsmanship yep. i'm out thank you guys see ya we'll see you soon so uh a couple things that i i want to address first with din taking the helmet off he had conflicting uh mandates so mandate one don't take your helmet off don't show your faith mandate two you're this as his this kid's father and you have to return him back to his people in order to do that. The kid wanted to see his foster dad's Mm -hmm. face to know that it was okay to go. So he can, you know, you had two conflicting uh, uh, cannons right there. And in order to satisfy one, you had to break the other. And he chose to break the one. So the kid could go back with his people. Uh, which is the Jedi, which he, he had been at the Jedi Temple. Now, I do think there's a, a factor here to uh, consider that is important uh, on that note. He's been around Mandalorians who take their helmets off. So he's realized, maybe I, I found out I was in a cult. <laughs> I didn't know that. I wasn't hanging out like knowing that there are different churches and different belief structures here. So that was kind of a surprise to him. So maybe that mellowed him out. Um, also just with the super cute kid, it's, it's hard to, to say no to that. And then Grogo clearly needed that, that sense of closure in order to, to go with Luke. Now I have a brother, Gabe, who's three years younger. I have my brother, half-brother Jordan, who's 13 years younger. And we've discussed this episode via text. And th- this, this episode is now going to get an explicit warning uh, because this was the text Gabe sent to me after watching this episode, which was Luke motherfucking Skywalker. <laughs> and then that started the discussion. Now, we, we've been on record before with thinking... Uh, oh, and Jordan's reaction was uh, this episode had E.T. feelings. So Jordan was in tears um, seeing Luke kick ass. And then what happens with, with, with the child? So my brothers were very, very uh, positive to this. And uh, I, I explained to Gabe that we initially, like my theory was it made no sense for Luke not to hear Grogu and be super weird for him not to respond. Like we have recording of that. However, we, I was in the camp thinking it was going to be Ezra Bridger 
because that way we're bringing an animated character to live screen. And when I said Ezra Bridger to, to Gabe, his reaction was, who's that? Is that the voice actor who played Luke in one of the animated series? Gabe had no concept of any of the animated series. Same with Jordan. Their reaction was, who the hell was that? So as much as fans who've seen the animated series uh, were thinking Ezra, other long-term fans had no idea who that was. And uh, it still worked with Ahsoka. Mm -hmm. Um, so like they, they were willing to, to learn that new character, but I think for the climax, it made sense for Luke, uh, just because of his position in the galaxy at that point in time. And, uh, the, re the reactions that my brothers had, uh, really drove it home for me because they were, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the, behind the creative decision yeah, that they made. I agree. I, I totally get what you're saying. Like, you know, I think most kind of casual fans or, um, you know, there, I mean, there's Star Wars fans who just like the Mandalorian and don't like general Star Wars, uh, uh -huh. you know, but like you said, Ahsoka kind of went over well there. She had that kind of duality of, of, you know, if you didn't know who she was, she was just this kind of, new Jedi character. And if you did know who she was, it was kind of a payoff. Um, that's to me why I think if they didn't do Ezra or um, I, I think I disagree with you, Nari, I think Mace Windu would have been totally weird. And like, it would have been, it would have struck like all those kind of Palpatine vibes from Rise of Skywalker. Um, but I think they could have introduced a new Jedi. I think they could have, th as long as you had somebody showing up with a lightsaber and just like there to kind of take names and kick ass, you know, and rescue the child, I think that would have gone over just as well. And it would have kind of kept to me what I kind of feel is the sacred nature of, or at least the, the, the unique quality of Mandalorian and hopefully some of the other shows, maybe not, you know, something as kind of canon tied as, as the Kenobi series. Um, but, you know, I think what's made Mandalorian special is that it tells another story of the galaxy. It kind of, you have all, the galaxy is just that. It's a whole freaking galaxy of stories. And like I said, you can tell the kind of, have references to those big moments, the Death Star, the New Republic, uh, the Imperial Remnant, all of that, um, the Empire without kind of, um, you have kind of more creative space to tell different stories without, like I said, shoehorning the Skywalkers in and making it seem like everything that has to happen in the galaxy has to ha like, have the Skywalker's thumb in it. Um, and that just, to me, like, I would have gone with something different. I know why they did it. I was plus my other my other disagreement with it wasn't just that it was Luke. It was this weird, creepy, de-aged Luke. And it was so creepy. His mouth really didn't move. Um, they could have easily, I mean, I think it would have been an easier pill for me to swallow if they had actually cast an actor like say like a Sebastian Stan who looks very much like a young Mark Hamill 
um, and kind of made it kind of looks a little different. It's not this weird DAG technology um, that I don't know why they're not using the Marvel de-aging technology when clearly they're right next door to them. <laughs> they're all under the same, you know, mouse house kind of thing. I don't know why they didn't just walk next door and get the Marvel de-aging technology or barf. Um, but that was, it was just kind of creepy to look at. It reminded me of Tarkin and um, Rogue One that it just, it felt really uncomfortable and just creepy to look well so can i so if this, i can just say i think i come out somewhere in between you two where um you know <laughs> there were i i didn't find the luke reveal you know ridiculous like very satisfying um you know i i i wasn't strictly unhappy at seeing luke skywalker but you know i i didn't think it was the most interesting thing that they could have done um and i agree with you gabby that one of the things that i love about mandalorian is that it is kind of its own thing so you know it's 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 intersecting with other stories it's making reference to galactic events it's clearly in the same universe um but you know so far like ahsoka and bo-katan have come in for a couple episodes but it's not that they're interweaving all of the you know other stories into this one this is it's kind of its own journey um so i agree that it wasn't necessarily the direction i would have gone <laughs> um i liked a lot of other things about the episode though so that i was generally pretty satisfied um i'm also kind of hopeful honestly like no offense to Mark Hamill, who I genuinely love and appreciate, but that, you know, there won't be a whole lot of episodes featuring D.H. Luke in the future. This can kind of be a background thing um, that Grogu is off doing this thing. Other things are happening and eventually he's reintroduced. Um, I just want to also defend myself briefly on Mace Windu, <laughs> so, which I know <laughs> there are really legitimate criticisms of. I just thought it would, would be pretty fun, number one, because I love Samuel L. Jackson. And he would have been the appropriate age, right? You, you wouldn't have had to de-age him. He should have been older at this point. Um, and his long absence from the events of episodes four through, four through six wouldn't be crazy if he had somehow barely survived this fall from a tall tower using his force powers, doesn't have a sword arm anymore, <laughs> might be so morally disheartened that he just wants to kind of hide and be a hermit. Um, there's some precedent for that kind of character um, in some of the extended universe uh, narratives. So I could have totally seen that. It would have been, I think, a reasonable balance to strike between, you know, the fan service of bringing a well-known character into it as opposed to, like you mentioned, Ezra Bridger, um, but not the Skywalker <laughs> uh, coming in to save the day, as is usually the case in the movies. <laughs> I, so this raises the what we concept in the law from... Uh, the restatement of contracts known as fancy taste or preference. Mm -hmm. And like those, there's no right or wrong answer to that because it falls to fancy taste or preference. We are the true fans and, and no other fans are the true fans. <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah. So you're, you're going to get a spectrum of reactions and, and that's okay. Like it's okay for some people to be ecstatic. It's, uh, it's okay for some people to go like, eh, I, I wanted to see something else. That's normal. Yeah. And we call that real yeah. life because that's how people are. Yes. Like not everyone's going to love everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I will, and I will like, tell you, um, my dear colleagues and, and fellow Star Wars Connecticut politicos, um, we have varying opinions on Star Wars. 
Um, he likes, he dislikes the prequels. I love the prequels. Um, he dislikes um, the the sequels. I, I, there are some things I didn't like about them, but I generally like them. Um, and he really, really loved um, this season finale and I did not. And one of the things we were talking about is, well, um, you know, will we ever find something to, to agree upon in, you know, our kind of mutual Star Wars love? And it was like, yes, we both love Baby Yoda. Um, we can agree that Baby Yoda is superior. Um, and I think one of the things I mentioned to him is we can all agree that Star Wars is good. Like overall, your any opinions you have, Star Wars is good. Um, and the reason we critique it, the reason we have such high expectations of it is because we love it so much. Um, and because we want it to be, to reach its full potential. Um, but we can all agree on this kind of mutual love of Star Wars. Um, so yeah, just, you know, don't, don't get into the whole, you are a Star Wars fan or you're not a Star Wars fan or you're a better fan or not a better fan. Yeah, I just, yeah, that's not the point. <laughs> it's okay not to like something. It's okay mm -hmm. to love something. Like that's, I, yeah, that that's that's real life. Mm -hmm. um, that said, yeah, there's uh, Brian Young, uh, who's on the Full of Sith podcast. A great guy. Um, he, he wrote a nice summary article, and his reaction to the end was Boba Fett was a spinoff. Uh, the people it was, I think it was IO9 or, or Gizmodo wrote, they, they had their article with, we don't know what this means. And they reached out to Lucasfilm for, for comment on is Mandu is Din Djarin's story done. Mm -hmm. And now we, the next chapter, cause the, the episodes are called chapters. Yeah. So have we been reading the book of Boba Fett all along? Yeah. So there's, um, I personally, am not into the underworld story. So like Boba Fett doesn't do anything for me. Yeah. Still watch it because it's Star Wars and I would give it a shot. Again, fancy taste preference. The idea of liberating Mandalore. Mm -hmm. I, I'm like, if that's where they're going, like I'm on board with that. If that's the next part of Din's journey as finding out that the culture that he uh, was rescued by and finding out that it's more diverse. What will he do when he learns about Satine? Mm -hmm. Like what's, what's his reaction to all of that? Which I, before I forget, I do have to kind of posit this theory that I saw on the interwebs um, that sounded really good. Um, that claims that, um, we've seen um, Sabine Wren um, this entire time and that she is actually undercover as the bridge officer that we see several times. I think she has a total of three um, cameos, three appearances. Um, she's played by, I know the actress's name, first name is Katie. She's a, uh, an MMA fighter. Um, she's also in several um, different shows like Black Lightning. Um, but that character, because she has, people are speculating because she has such a large role, right? Most of the Imperial officers we see besides Moff Gideon get like X really quickly. 
um, and she has a much larger role than any anybody else. And she's she's not named, right? Because Moff Gideon, he's a larger imperial character, but he's named. Um, and um, the actress said something about that she may be a double agent. Um, so just something to speculate there, friends. <laughs> it's just... We have a creative writing team. Like these, you know, Favreau and Filoni clearly love Star Wars. They mm -hmm. know it well. You know, the, the meme that's going around of two little kids playing with their Star Wars toys saying, you know, that, that say it's Favreau and Filoni uh, writing an episode. Like that's, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that that makes sense. So, you know, waiting until next December is going to be a while. Um <laughs> I can't do it, guys. I just can't do it. <laughs> okay. We're going to start doing Star Wars Saturdays. We're going to pick issues to talk about. It's all going to be okay. I um, mean, Josh, okay. we have some pretty solid, um, if you are in the crossover branch between Star Wars and Marvel fandom, we have some good Marvel and DC stuff coming out in the next couple months. You know, Wonder Woman 84 is dropping on Christmas Day. Days, right? Yeah, it's just a few days. Um, WandaVision is coming. Um, uh, Falcon, Falcon and the Winter, so Winter Soldier is dropping in March, I believe. Um, so it's the good half, the first half of 2021, end of 2020 is a good time to be a Marvel fan. And then we'll get all our solid Star Wars content back online. So, and, and I think these stories. Thank you, Gabby. Thank yeah. you, Josh. <laughs> Both Marvel and Star Wars work better in the short story form with episodes. I don't get me wrong. I do love a big movie. Like I'm not saying I want those to go away, but the idea of seeing Sam Wilson and Bucky Barnes week after week, a political spy thriller. I'm like completely on board. I, with my Christmas bonus, I bought a Captain America shield <gasps> prop replica for Falcon and Winter Soldier that will arrive early January because I, we're going to need it for podcast and mm -hmm. blog post. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's required. So again, I, mean, I could watch hours of them saying you move. No, you move. No, you move. No, you move. They have great chemistry. This is going to be so much fun. <laughs> and uh, Winter Soldier is my favorite Marvel movie because it just, it works for me. It's, it's uh, I mean, the, the comic Winter Soldier storyline was exceptional. And so this, the, the, the film, I think was the best out of, or it's my favorite. I, mm -hmm. there's more than 20 to, to go through, but it's my favorite. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a fancy taste preference. So WandaVision looks crazy, weird, fun. Mm -hmm. And if they do... They John Byrne did a limited series with Wanda and Vision Married back in the 80s. They might be pulling elements from that. They also played might be playing with elements of Wanda kind of going a little crazy. Um, she because she technically should not have had children with the vision. Turns out that her twins, she actually mm -hmm. created them with her mutant hex power. Mm -hmm. So are they doing that? And with her uh, reality bending powers, 
is that how the vision's there? Is like, is that the town that they, or the city block that they've made? Yep. And flipping through channels, is that all her in kind of a pseudo House of M? Yep, uh, that's, that's what people are saying, that they are following the House of M comic book series. And that the way um, Kevin Feige has structured it, um, I can't remember the, the complete order of them based in the timeline, um, but that it's going to be kind of a three part, um, um, three act series. So starting with um, WandaVision series, um, then I believe the next one will be Spider-Man three. Um, and then you'll have Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Oh, I, I have those backwards. Okay, so it's, it's, it's WandaVision, Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness, then Spider-Man. Um, because you are, which makes sense because, right, because we already know that Scarlet Witch is going to be in Multiverse of Madness. Um, and then you have all these kinds of alternate reality Spider-Man and Spider-Man characters being cast in Spider-Man 3. Um, so, and there's talk that it may be called Spider-Man Homeworlds um, or Homeworld um, to a reference to the multi uh, multiverse. So, um, yeah, that, that'll be quite interesting to see that kind of, and Doctor Strange is said to be cast also in, in Spider-Man 3 already. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out. That's that larger narrative arc. Um, and Sam Raimi is directing both Doctor Strange and Spider-Man. So mm -hmm. instantly you, uh, we, we have established that Sam Raimi knows the Spider-Man character very well. Mm -hmm. And uh, we wouldn't be here today without the success of the first two Spider-Man movies. And, and the then third the one we don't talk about. Yeah, it's, <laughs> they, they, they screwed him by saying, because he set it up for the lizard, and then they wanted him to cram in Sandman and Venom, and that was that was studio interference yeah. there. So um, with Dark Peter times. going... Dark times. <laughs> but, but we're in a golden age with the amount of content that we have coming out. And uh, between us and the good guys at, at Beltway Banthas, there's no shortage of content on the Star Wars side for us to talk about. And the Marvel side uh, is going to be glorious. So there's a, this is a wonderful uh, time and God bless Disney Plus. Mm -hmm. um, so first off, um, thank you to everyone who's been here uh, enjoying us geek out about the law and about these characters and stories that we love. We'll have more. Um, actually Jessica Meterson and I were talking about some things that we can do for 2021 in addition to the end of 2020. And uh, we've also been talking about uh, being on Get Vocal uh, regularly. So that's going to be happening and, and other good things. So everyone, thank you. Thank you for being here. And uh, above all else, stay healthy, stay safe. This has been so horrible with, you know, a year with over 300,000 people dying. Like my dad died of a stroke. This has been such an emotionally exhausting year for everybody. And, uh, you know, when I think of, of what we do and the community that we have, you know, it's, it's nice for people to get together. We, we did a meet and confer Zoom call 
on Friday night that had judges and other lawyers who are all geeks talk about the stuff that they love. Like this, for this, our community, it makes people happy. And that's, that's a good thing. So with that, uh, there's a lot to look forward to uh, in the future. And then everyone stay happy, stay safe, and uh, happy holidays. And for those who are Christmas nerds, have a very Merry Christmas. And we will see you all in the very near future. Happy Life Day. Yes, yes. Um, I remember the unpleasantness. (laughs) Anyway, everyone be well.